program. I'm Jeff Schechter. A Scottish writer back in 1915 coined the phrase, think globally, but act locally. While it was about grassroots movements, it could just as easily be about understanding the universe. For the fundamental laws of physics which govern the workings of the cosmos are not abstract, untethered as a set of rules, but have an impact in how we live and, in fact, to the very meaning of human existence. It has to. After all, it's the only way we can look out on the vastness of space and time and ask ourselves what it's all about and what's our place in it. If you ask these questions better and find answers more effectively than my guest, Sean Carroll. Sean Carroll is a theoretical physicist at Caltech. He received his PhD from Harvard, and recently he worked on the foundations of quantum mechanics, the arrow of time, and the emergence of complexity. It is my pleasure to welcome Sean Carroll to the program to talk about his newest work, The Big Picture, on the origins of life, meaning, and the universe itself. Sean Carroll, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. It's great to have you here. Talk a little bit first about why we should care with all the, the crises and problems going on in the world today. Why is it we should really look out at space and look out at the cosmos and care about what's going on and our place in it? Well, you know, I like to think that it's, it's our universe. You know, we're all uh, co-owners of this giant universe that we live in. We, we're made of the same kind of stuff that the universe is made out of. We obey the same laws of physics. And what makes us human, in some sense, is our curiosity about things. There are crises going on here on Earth, and we shouldn't ignore them. We should, you know, work to make our local conditions as, as good as we can be. But the reason why we want to do that is so that people can live lives where they can enrich them beyond merely surviving and getting by from day to day, to, an to ask and maybe even answer some of these big questions. And do we learn from better understanding the laws of the universe, the physics of the universe, does that give us a better understanding, a better grounding in being able to address those more local kinds of problems? Yeah, I think it absolutely does. I mean, my, my book has an, a preposterously ambitious... <laughs> title, you know, on the origins of life, meaning, and the universe itself. But I, I should say right away, I don't give you the answers to those things. I don't know what the answers are. We don't know where the universe came from, where life started, or how we should live good lives here. However, we have a sort of framework in which to address these questions, the framework of naturalism and the laws of nature. And so uh, it's sort of an invitation to think deeply about these questions and to see how all the different pieces fit together. You don't need to know particle physics to do ethical and moral philosophy, or biology or neuroscience for that matter. But whatever you do, it better be compatible with what we know about the laws of physics. In many ways, they seem sort of antithetical to each other because on the one level, there, there's a set of rules, a set of laws that we continue to, to better understand in terms of what makes the universe tick. And yet, here in our daily existence, there seems to be constant entropy, constant breakdown of any kind of rules and, that keep things moving forward. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a good point. And I think that part of uh, what I talk about in the book is how the different layers fit together. We certainly do live in a world that is characterized by increasing entropy, entropy being the physics way of talking about disorderliness and disorganization in the world. The world is winding down in that sense. But part of what happens as entropy increases is that along the way, 
complex structures come into existence, complicated parts of the universe like planets and galaxies and people. So in some sense, our very existence is a side effect of the fact that the universe is increasing in entropy. Talk a little bit about what that means in terms of the universe, from a scientific perspective. Well, you know, I, I, I compare in the book the universe to a cup of coffee. If you think about cream mixing into coffee, when the cream is separate, that's what we call a low entropy state. It's very organized. But it's also very simple. There's the cream, there's the coffee. When you mix them all together, it's high entropy. Everything is mixed up now. But it's still very simple, right? It's just everything is mixed together. It's in between. It's in that moment when your spoon is mixing in there and you see the tendrils of the cream mixing into the coffee. There's this complicated fractal pattern that emerges. That's when things are complex and interesting. And that's exactly the story of the universe itself. It starts out simple. It becomes complex right now. And it will get simple again. The stars will die out. The universe will become dark and lonely in the future. So we right now live in the part of the history of the universe that is sort of the exciting and interesting version, the exciting and interesting era in the history of the cosmos. And is it important to understand where in that cycle we are? I mean, obviously we're, we're not at the apogee of it, but, but where are we in that cycle? And what significance does that have? Well, we might be more or less at the apogee of complexity in mm -hmm. the universe. We actually don't know. This is a sort of science that is brand new, that we're not really good at yet. Uh, we don't have a good way of quantifying what we mean by complexity and so forth. Uh, so we are certainly in an interesting, lively part of the history of the universe, and there will be ultimate heat death, but that's going to be quadrillions of years in the future. So this is, it's an exciting prospect to see how to fit together the physics, the cosmology, the complexity theory, the biology, and so on. How does the biology fit in? Well, we think that biology is, you know, uh, and something that is completely compatible with physics. Biological creatures are made of atoms. Atoms are made of particles that interact using certain forces. So even though, like, like I said, you don't need to know particle physics to know biology, ultimately biology is a bunch of particles interacting in a particular complex way. And you can actually trace the physics concepts like entropy and free energy and so forth all the way to the biology, to metabolism, to why life began in the first place, to information theory and replication and DNA. So that's the beauty of the big picture, that we talk about the world in different ways, but it's all the same world underneath. Right, and, and the degree, I mean, and that goes to the complexity, I guess, that you're talking about, that, that all of these things are deeply interconnected if you start to deconstruct them. Yes, absolutely. And that's kind of the fun of it. You know, mm -hmm. I, I wrote this book as a physicist, and there's a lot of in the book that is not physics, right? There's biology and philosophy and neuroscience, and I'm not pretending to tell biologists how to do biology. But nobody in the world is an expert at all of these different areas. Nevertheless, they're related to each other. So we kind of have to talk to each other, right? We have to have this conversation between people who are not experts in each other's fields because everyone shares the same underlying physics, this cosmos, this universe in which we live. The other overlay to that is the, the fundamental 
parts of physics that really enhance communication today and make it so much easier for us to connect with each other all over the world? Absolutely. You know, uh, I do the kind of physics, the kind of theoretical physics, that uh, doesn't have a lot of immediate applications technologically, but there's no question that science as a whole has absolutely changed the landscape of how we live in the world because of these technological innovations. And to be honest, I think we're at the beginning of this. I don't think we're anywhere near the end. I think that we're going to see tremendous advances in, for example, how brains and computers interface with each other, or longevity and how we can get younger through biological treatments. So I think that, you know, the scientific era is at the beginning of its human phase. It's not anywhere near the end. And how do we do a better job, whether it's communicators or scientists or whoever, how do we do a better job of putting all of this change, all of this development that you're talking about, in, in a sense of greater poetry, of greater naturalism, as you talk about, and less fear that it generates today? You know, I think that a lot of it is exposure and, and contemplation. I think that the, the things that science teaches us can be very alien and intimidating. You know, science reaches into parts of the universe that we don't experience in our everyday lives, and therefore it shouldn't be surprising that what we learn about the world is kind of weird and it can be off-putting. The more, but the more we dig into it, the more we understand and we go, oh yeah, okay, I see how it's working the better it fits in with our overall worldview. So there's no advantage in life to ignoring the fact that we live in this particular complicated world that obeys the laws of nature. Every advantage is to be gained by studying it the best we can. I wonder if that helps dissipate the fear, though, that goes along with it for a lot of people. I absolutely think it does. You know, I mean, that's a question, again, for empirical psychology. Mm -hmm. I don't really have a lot of data along these lines. But, uh, I mean, there's no doubt that in the conventional way of thinking, the fact that we are so tiny compared to the universe, mm -hmm. and the fact that our lives are finite, and our lives come to an end at, at, at some point, that, you know, can be, I don't want to say depressing, but at least, you know, it can be deflating, right, uh, to, to really recognize our finitude. But then once you think about it a little bit, you know, you go, well, okay, this is the world I have. I have a lifetime, a century or less, here on Earth, there are people around me whose lives I can affect. I better get to it, right? You know, you have to value what you have here on Earth because that is all that you can possibly have. At what point do we have, or how far away are we, I guess is the better question, how far away are we from having a better, a fuller, a greater understanding of those fundamental laws of the universe? Well, I like to think that every day we get a little bit closer. Um, you know, we have, I try to make the point in the book, we have a very good theory of the stuff of which you and I are made, what Frank Wilczek, the Nobel Prize winner, calls the core theory of fundamental physics, the electrons and protons and neutrons. We know how that stuff operates within our everyday experience. We don't know what happens at the Big Bang. We don't know what happens inside black holes. And we also don't know how these elementary pieces like electrons and protons fit together to make, you know, legislatures and books of poetry or complicated things like that, much less a human brain. So there's an enormous amount we have to learn, but there's also an enormous amount that we already know. And that's, that's an equally impressive fact about how far we've come. 
to what extent do you think that as we know these things, as we begin to learn more about those fundamental rules, it will change how we see ourselves in the larger framework? It's a very good question. Um, I don't know. I think that individuals get to sort of answer that for themselves. So one of the points I try to make is that the universe doesn't tell us what meaning we should attach to it. It doesn't tell us what is right and what is wrong, how to live a good life. But it tells us what it is. You know, if we study the universe, if we listen to it, we can learn what the universe is and be inspired by it. We can sort of figure out for ourselves what we want to make of our lives, our, as I put in the book, three billion heartbeats that the average human lifespan lasts here on Earth. So individuals might get different answers for these questions. I think that's okay is a big part of what we've learned. Talk about the, the notion of naturalism in this framework that, that you write about in the book. Well, naturalism is just a simple idea that there is only one world. There's the natural world. There's not a supernatural extra part of the world. And this natural world obeys laws, the laws of nature, and we can learn about it by doing science, by proposing hypotheses and then testing them, by taking observations. And, you know, so we don't need to reach outside the universe to help account for the universe, to help explain it. We don't need anything to push the universe, to keep it going, to bring it into existence. It's just the universe, and that fits what we understand perfectly well. But of course, there's all these surprises that are inherent in that, things like the possible dimensionality that comes from things like string theory and the like. Oh, absolutely. You know, there's, there's a lot of room for surprises. Uh, I, and I try very hard, who knows whether it will succeed or not, but I try hard in the book to distinguish the fact that we do understand the behavior of electrons and protons and neutrons in your body, but we don't understand everything about the fundamental nature of space and time and physics. That's, those two co statements are completely compatible. And I'm not saying that we're anywhere close to understanding the fundamental nature of space and time and, and physics. We might be close. We might be discovered next year, or it might take thousands of years or even longer to figure it out. So that's part of the fun of doing science is that you can't flip to the back of the book and read the answers. You have to progress moment by moment and try to learn as much as you can. And where is the cutting edge right now in terms of what we're learning? There is more than one cutting edge. I think it's the only fair answer to that. There's so many cutting edges. Uh, there are particle physicists in Geneva at the Large Hadron Collider smashing particles together. There are astrophysicists looking at galaxies and remnants of the Big Bang. There are neuroscientists mapping out the connections of the different neurons in your brain. There are biologists learning how molecules come together to maybe start life in the first place. There's just so much going on. It's an amazing time to be alive if you're interested in following the progress of our understanding of the world. And what's interesting is thinking about it, all of this work that, that you're just delineating in the context of complexity, on the, in the context of communication, and, and how all of this ultimately might fit together. Yeah, I think it, it, is, it is a fascinating thing, and, and as much as we have learned about the laws of physics and the nature of certain things, not only do we learn more about what we're studying as time goes on, but we also learn to ask different questions, right? So the very idea of studying complexity in its own right, rather than individual complex things, is a relatively new idea. It's not one that we've really mastered yet. We don't agree on the definition of what complexity is and so forth. So 
there's a long way to go in sort of putting it all together to understand how you go from the Big Bang to where we are today, but you can see the outline of a story coming together. And do you think that that story is being told, and I know that's some of what, what you try to do in the big picture, that that story is being told, that that story gets out there to the public in a way that is as exciting as I'm sure it is for you? I think that there's an underserved demand. I think that, you know, there's there's a lot of wonderful books and TV shows and so forth uh, that explain science and all of its excitement. But there could be a lot more. You know, there's plenty of room for uh, better and better explanations because, for one thing, different people respond to different ways of explaining these deep ideas. So I'm all for a pluralism in the ecosystem of communicating science and and knowledge more generally in different ways. And in your personal view, where does science fiction fit into that? I'm a big fan of science fiction myself. You know, I don't think it helps us understand science, but it sort of stretches our imagination, helps us imagine what the future could be like, for example. And also, there's this wonderful underappreciated aspect of science fiction for metaphorical purposes. It's not just about predicting the future. It's about thinking about what human beings are like here and now by imagining putting them in very, very different situations and seeing how they would react. So I love science fiction as sort of a narrative playground on which to imagine different kinds of human reactions. Are there potential surprises out there where some of the rules that we think are are physically in place today, in place in the realms of physics, that, that those rules still may change somewhat? I think it depends on what uh, rules we're talking about. You know, there's always room for surprises. One of the most important things about science is you always have to be open to the possibility of being surprised. But at the same time, there are parts of the world that we do understand pretty well. You know, uh, the table in front of you is made of atoms. That's, that's not a hypothesis that may or may not be true, that, you know, a thousand years from now we're going to realize, oh, the whole atom idea was on the wrong track, okay? (laughs) It'll still be true a thousand years from now that the table is made of atoms. Likewise, the rules we have for how those atoms behave are pretty well established, how electrons and, and nuclei interact with each other. However, there's enormous amount of room for what the deeper levels are, uh, what is the space and time and particle stuff, the ultimate er stuff out of which the universe is constructed? And then how does that all fit together to make these complex uh, structures that we see all around us? There's much, much room for huge surprises there. And to what extent does the search for any other kind of life in the universe, to what extent is that part of, of the mystery of all of this? And, and how important is that? in this larger framework we're talking about? It's interesting because I think that the search for life elsewhere has changed in character uh, over recent years because we finally reached the point technologically where we can locate that there are planets around other stars and we can finally sort of begin to contemplate going there. You know, it would take a very long time. The speed of light gets in the way. The nearest planets are light years away. Uh, We can barely... We haven't sent a human being to Mars yet, so sending human beings to other star systems is not on the agenda anytime soon. But we're getting there. You know, we're, getting, we're getting closer. And we still don't know a lot about how life began, what the fundamental definition of life really is. 
So again, that's an area where there's plenty of room for surprises. And I'm a big supporter, booster of things like visiting the moons of Jupiter, visiting Europa, which has more water on its surface than the Earth has on its surface. And it, it's covered with ice, but then under the ice there's liquid water. And who knows what living creatures are under there. I would love to go look. Sean Carroll, his new book is The Big Picture on the Origins of Life, Meaning, and the Universe Itself. Sean, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you very much for having me on. Thank you.